Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City stride jazz pianist Bronwyn Nance. He grew up in the Netherlands and came to Kansas City after striking up friendships with Richard Ross and Deborah Brown. Since the early 90s, he has made Kansas City home, and he's been all over the place, all over the scene, giving fans his jazz from the majestic to way, way beyond. He talked about his education, his love of Kansas City, performing live, what may be next, and so much more. So please get to know Brom and dig this interview, my friends. Brom, thanks for taking a minute out today. I appreciate it. No problem. Let me go ahead and start off here. I know you're a busy man. You're, you're a man about Kansas City. You're always playing. But give me an idea of what's been going on with you lately. Recording, uh, I did a thing with my band, but that's almost four years ago. It's about ready for me to make another recording, but I'm planning a session probably in the summer. I want to do that with my daughter, Lucille, who's going to the conservatory in, in uh, Purchase, New York, SUNY Purchase, State University of New York. She is turning out into a great jazz singer. She just did uh, Three Nights of Birdland last week. <laughs> Man, beautiful. Yeah, she, that was her debut right there, Three Nights in a Row. Yeah, wow. it was great. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm very proud of her. So I'm planning a recording session with her. I did some in the past, but she's been maturing so quickly, you know. I mean, it's it's really something else. So that's a recording uh, 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 project that's in the works. Uh, And I'm hoping to get my swing band to back her up. You know, I have a swing cat, five people that I do some stuff with. Uh, We just did uh, a jazz workshop in October, and that went over very well. I'm still at the Majestic Restaurant. Friday and Saturday night, and I'm also playing Kansas City Beer Company on Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Those are the regular things here. So I'm going to go from right now in your life to the beginnings of your life in the Netherlands, and I want to talk about your childhood. How did you get the jazz bug? When did you start out on the piano, and how did you progress to the point where you moved to the United States? I started out with the, on the piano because I wanted it. Uh, yeah. I was staying with an aunt when I was three years old, and she had a piano, and her neighbors had pianos. So, and I was uh, intrigued by it, so I could stay off of it. So, my aunt calls my father, said, "You know, my it was my father's sister. She says you got to get him a piano." So he did. <laughs> That's how it started. So I'm not the usual case where, you know, the parents. If you want to put that kid on music lessons or anything like that, it was the other way around, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had lessons off and on, but um, there was no jazz teacher in my hometown. I knew I wanted to play jazz ever since I was five years old. The first jazz I heard was Django Reinhardt and Hot Club the Friends. My father had his records. You know, my father had kind of like a big hand in, you know, in the first beginnings as to what I wanted to do. Or, you know, gave me some examples. It happened to be stuff that he liked. And uh, I don't know. It just worked out that way. I've been playing swing music ever since. <laughs> Not nice. just piano, but a specific, a specific style. I'm into stride. Uh, plays, you know, I'm into swing. I'm, I'm totally into the 30s and 40s. Um. I, so I did not really have any 
former jazz class. I had former musical education as, as a kid, but there was no jazz teacher, so I didn't really... I had to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. But then when I went to the conservatory uh, in Amsterdam, that was, uh, you know, really when I got totally immersed into, you know, because it was a jazz school. So that's really when... I, I loved it there because I got to learn so much and um, things I, I wanted to know, you know, that I couldn't figure out on my own. So um, that's really when, uh, you know, I, I really look back fondly on that time, you know, when I was in, uh, in the conservatory. It was, I had I was a great teacher, so um, so that's, in short, my early life, I guess. <laughs> right on. So, how does the jazz scene here in the states in Kansas City compare to you where you grew up in in your home in the Netherlands? Well, yeah, you can't compare the two as they were twenty five thirty years ago because um, a lot of things have changed in Europe too. Uh, there's a you know an older style resurgence, a lot of swing. Um, when I was still living in Holland, there was a, there was a lot of modern jazz and a lot of free jazz, a lot of avant-garde going on. And like I said, I was always into swing. So um, I also like you know the intricacies of swing big band arranging, which is very interesting. But you know now there seems to be a, a you know a comeback in Europe as well. Um, as far as you know, making a living as a musician, um, it's different. You know, in Europe, you always have, and, and it's still that way, you always have to be on the horn, you know, keeping yourself working. If you have a regular gig, that means you have three nights in a row. <laughs> and if you have a regular gig here, like, for instance, I've been at the Majestic for 24 plus years now. So it works different here. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of gigs. If you land one, is like a regular occurrence. Even the shorter ones, they can run for several months. Uh, you don't see that in Europe anywhere. What was it like when you came to America for the first time? Was it Kansas City that you came to, and what kind of culture shock was it? Uh, I don't know if it was a culture shock necessarily because we weren't here that long. Uh, it was different, but it was a lot of fun. You know, when you're young, it's like you, you explore a lot of stuff anyway. Uh, uh, it, you know, and we, we already were working with um, Deborah Brown, the singer, and Richard Ross, who was the singer and the, and the drummer here in Europe a lot. So we were kind of familiar with how they operated, and, you know, as Americans. So, of course, it was new and different, but it wasn't completely unheard of what, you know, what we saw here, what we uh, got to know. And actually, we, we came to Love Kansas City. Uh, but in the first trip in 91, we were here for a little over a week, I think, a week and a half. So, uh, it wasn't that long. It wasn't that I really got to know Kansas City until the year after. And then uh, we made a lot of friends. So we didn't really have a hard time 
uh, you know, getting around or feeling at home because there were a lot of people that uh, that were very nice to us. So, cool. Um, and, you know, Kansas City, as far as that's concerned, you know, you know, the people are more casual here. They kind of have their feet on the ground a little bit. They're not so uppity or whatever, you know, like you see in other, you know, I mean, if I were to compare this, you know, this is a whole different city than the, like, for instance, New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. Uh, and Kansas City is kind of like my hometown, really, the way that people, you know, conduct themselves, how they act. So it's, it's very comfortable. <laughs> right on. It is, for sure. It just turned out that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what brought you to the Stride Piano ultimately? Oh, I, that, well, that's, that's an easy answer. Uh, I saw Stormy Weather on the BBC when I was eight years old, and I saw Fatswala play uh, Ain't Misbehaving. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. That was it. I saw him. That, I saw that movie scene. That was it. No question about it. That was easy. That was an easy decision. <laughs> Beautiful. So it was so. It sounded so rich, and you know, it was so much fun. It's just I gotta be able to do that. You know. Yeah. So. So, were there any other influences that you that that, that influenced your stride piano and and just your introduction to jazz? Well, he, of course, you know, Errol Garner, you know, Art Tatum, all the classics, you know, yeah, people, Betty Wilson, Mel Powell. I love all those guys. They sound great, you know. They also yeah. have great harmonics, you know. They're used with passing chords and all that. Uh, it's really interesting. It's interesting. It's intelligent. It's fun, but it is intelligent. And uh, so it's it's not like I'm listening to dumb shit. You know, some yeah. people in Holland, especially when a lot of the avant-garde was going on in the 80s and, uh, you know, early 90s, you know, they didn't understand that. They, they uh, perceived that as commercial jazz. And it's like, I don't think so. You know, you can't call Arcade a commercial. He was an artist. Um, and, you know, when you listen to the intelligence behind it, I mean, it's, it's like impossible to call it commercial. I mean, they were popular songs that they were playing from the Great American Songbook, but it was, I wouldn't say it was pop music. You know, some of it was. I mean, because jazz in 1940 was 95% of the record sales. But it was still intelligent, artistic music. And that was the only time when popular music and intelligence, you know, went hand in hand. I don't, I haven't seen it since. Um, yeah, but I, I like it. It's fun to play. It's interesting to play. It's difficult to play. But it also hones your skills as a pianist anyway, you know, in so many different ways. Um technically speaking, that, uh, and also, you know, intellectually speaking, you know, it's from a music theory standpoint. Uh, to me, it's the ultimate, you know, I mean, other than classical piano, you know, stride piano teaches you the most about harmony, about timing, about theory, you know, and even melodically, you know, good composition. It's all there. It's very universal, but, you know, also when you... Um, analyze some of the old stride players, you realize that some of them 
think orchestral instead of just as a pianist. They don't think as a pianist. They think orchestra when they're playing it, and that's why it's so rich. Interesting. I find it interesting. Yeah, I do too. In fact, let me, let me ask you this: you, there could have you could have picked any city to come to in America. Technically, why did you pick Kansas City? Uh, well, it was kind of convenient because. Deborah Brown and Richard Ross are both from here. And uh, so we naturally, you know, they steered us onto some contacts here. So naturally that became the first city that we ever went to. I mean, if they would have been from New York, I guess we would have, you know, gone to New York. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of glad it turned out to be Kansas City because it's a lot easier to live here. <laughs> <laughs> it's New York. If I look at the cost of living in New York, even back then, it's like that's insane. But uh, no, it was basically because Deborah Brown and Richard Ross were from here, so they steered us onto some contacts naturally in Kansas City. You know, they said, "Hey, yeah, you come talk to such and such." So you know, first time we came out here, we had a week scheduled with Richard Ross at the City Light. Jazz Club, which just six months prior to where we came, moved to the plaza. It was still called City Light Jazz Club at the time. I got a picture of it somewhere, but it's now the Plaza 3. But it was that same, you know, building downstairs. And we broke the fire code every night. It was so much fun. <laughs> Seriously, they went, they, we broke the fire code every night. We were there, I think, eight nights in a row, and all. Oh, uh, what what was the name of the manager there? The, he was a very nice man. So he was a contact that we got steered on to. So he said, yeah, come on over here. So we made a trip of it. We visited a friend of mine in New York that I met in Amsterdam, uh, a pianist that made uh, our Tatum transcription, so I had to go check him out, you know. And uh, so we had like three days of strike sessions out there. Uh in his parents' apartment in Gramercy Park, which is a great experience. <laughs> so we spent three days in New York, and then we went camping in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> because we wanted to, it was our first time in the United States, you know? And yeah. then we came to Kansas City. Well, we came to Kansas City first to pick up a rental car so we could, you know, drive to, uh, through the, uh, to the Rockies and then come back and... So we were here for a couple of days, then we went out there, and then we came back and did that whole thing at the, the City Light Jazz Club. So it was, which was a really nice first trip, you know. But yeah. Kansas City, you know, at the end of it, you know, it was so much fun. It's like, so we, we made a lot of friends initially already in contact, also at the Phoenix. So in, this, in the next couple of years, we were playing at the Phoenix all the time when uh, Ron Schoonover still had it. So that was a lot of fun, too. So in 92, we really started traveling back and forth heavily. So cool. and that it was by the end of that year that I officially actually more, you know, got located here. So it was a little bit of a process, but it, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> cool. So how did you initially hook up with Deborah and Richard? Deborah was teaching jazz vocals at my conservatory. 
it all started then when I was still a student. Interesting. So I was, uh, I knew her very well, and you know, I also was, you know, as a piano student, asked a lot to, uh, you know, sit in in their lessons and then just just uh, accompany her vocal students. So they needed somebody for a piano accompaniment. So, and then I did that and several other students and whoever was available. I mean, we actually got paid a little money for that uh, or, you know, to to do that. Because sometimes we'd sit um, between your classes and it could be for hours. Um, yeah. You know, accompanying one student after another. So, it's not that I just got to know her really well, you know. I, I also, you know, performed with her, but I also got to know her really well as, as a person and also how she um, uh, teaches vocals. Uh, it's some some interesting techniques that she's talked about. So it was very interesting to sit in those lessons. But So I've known her since, oh gosh, I mean, I, I really got to know her in 87, I think. I went to school there in 86. So the next year I really got to know her very well. So it's been, uh, you know, it, I've known her for four years even before I got here. So cool. How yeah. about Richard? How did you hook up with him? Well, that was true, uh, Deborah, because her husband also, you know, uh, knew a lot of people here, and um, they knew Richard. Richard was a good friend of theirs. So at some point, they got Richard to Holland, and. Uh, we all, you know, got hooked up, and so we backed up Richard, you know, with my trio or Deborah or both, you know, where they would, you know, alternate, you know, songs, and, you know, kind of like had a double show going on. Um, but, yeah, that was true, Deborah. So they, they flew him in here one time and, you know, set up some concerts, and uh, and so we were traveling back and forth also a lot with richard back in those days um between here and europe so <laughs> it was there was a lot of flying at the time there was a lot of flying. yeah right on what was it like to work with richard oh he was so laid back um he um you know he didn't know much about arranging or anything, so but he remembered everything. So if we would like, for instance, work out uh, intros, endings, or interludes, or anything like that, then we would just play it for him, and then and then he would say, "Well, can we do this, that, and the other?" You know, but he couldn't write anything down. Uh, I mean, but he knew uh, enough about form because he was also a drummer, where he could, you know, explain what he wanted. And then we would work it out that way. We would make our own notes, but then he would remember everything and just saying everything. And the most interesting thing about Richard was that he was a terrible stutterer. And uh, when he talked, but as soon as he got on stage, he would sing without any stuttering. It was very interesting. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. It's like a different part of the brain. And uh, there is an, in, uh, an institute in Amsterdam that the father of a friend of mine initiated, and it's it's uh, it's to help people get rid of stuttering. And this man was an opera singer, and it's the same thing. He went into okay when you sing, it's a different part of the brain than when you talk. So he's trying to help these people 
uh, it cures stuttering by talking using a different part of the brain. And it's a long process, you know, you got to train yourself to do that. Uh, but, you know, with Richard, it's like, sometimes it was very hard, or you have to, you know, be patient with him, because sometimes it would take a while before he would get to his true sentence. But as soon as he started singing, there was no stuttering at all whatsoever. And only if he made an announcement a little bit, but when he was in performance mode, it was, you know, when he was talking to the audience, it wasn't as bad as when he just, you know, sitting around at home. Yeah, that was really interesting. But he was a fun guy to work with. He had some funny stories. It was great. Some of the stuff that's X-rated, obviously. You don't want to repeat (laughs) that. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I love it. So, as a stride pianist in Kansas City, how have you been able to find all of these opportunities to have regular work? Well, um, I was I was sought out a lot, um, and um, of course I you know what you what you do is even though that you don't I wasn't working all the time I was working as the Phoenix a lot, but um, that was a. A time when you know sometimes it gets hard, you know. Um, and I think Ron Schoonover left the Phoenix, and then you know new owners, things change. Um, but then uh, you have to go after it. So what I did was go to figure out where all the jam sessions were. So I was hanging uh, uh, around a lot at the levee where Tommy Ruskin had his jam session. In the day, it was that was back in the levee, or you know, and then we could go. Uh, you know, sit in with Sonny Canner there sometimes. That was great fun. Anyway, but that that, that is a good way to uh, to get to know people. And then, of course, I was lucky to see in the Jam magazine an article about Doug Barnard opening the Majestic Steakhouse. Back then, it was called the Steakhouse, and that was in 1993. So I saw this article and said, I'm going to talk to this guy. And he turned out to be a great, nice guy, and I've been working with Majestic ever since, <laughs> even though cool. Doug doesn't have it anymore. But that's, I saw this, and it's like, well, I'm I'm going to give it a shot. And I mean, if you don't ask, you're not going to get it, right? Sure. And uh, so I told him about who I was and, you know, the people coming out to the Phoenix all the time when we're playing this, that, and the other. He said, well, okay, we'll give it a shot. So turned out great. So it's, yeah, it made life a lot easier. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> tell you that. Absolutely. So let me ask you: your your different incarnations of you as a musician. You have various ensembles. You got your trio and the swing set. How does how does all of that work for you? Do you approach each of these bands in a similar fashion, or are you looking for a different kind of? vibe or niche with each one? How does it work for you? Uh, well, basically, if you're talking about a different vibe, that's basically uh, already, you know, different because of what the instrumentation is and what you're doing. See, with my band, for instance, um, I do make put the emphasis on good arranging, you know, so that even if I only have three or four horn players, it sounds like a big band. You know, you give it that kind of a structure. Uh, if you write a good arrangement, which is, thank God I learned that in school really well how to do, um, it gives it class, but it also makes it more rich. 
Um, so it's, it's instead of, you know, like playing off of a head chart, and head chart is what we call it, meaning we all know the melody, we all know the chords, and we're just going to play and see what happens. When I work with my swing set, I don't operate that way. I'm going to write an arrangement. I'm going to make it classy, you know, just like they did back in the 40s. Um, but, you know, and of course, when it's a trio, um, a lot of the things that I do with a trio is without a bass a lot of times because I play stride. So I cover the bass part of it myself anyway. And then I have a horn player on drums instead of bass and drums. And the horn players, they add another dynamic, too. So it's kind of like the Benny Goodman trio, that kind of thing. Um, you know, when I use John Blagan on clarinet, he's great. Um, or Barry Springer on trumpet, or David Chill on tenor, you know, whatever. And it all works, just, you know, with stride piano bass, you know, uh, we stride piano and, and drums behind them. Um so it, it makes it a more a little more interesting because even though if you have a really good bass player, they do not necessarily want to play a solo on every song. And I agree with them. I don't want a bass solo on every song because that gets kind of boring too, you know, because the, a bass is so big that you are somewhat limited. You have to be a damn good bass player to do some virtuoso stuff on a bass, right? On an upright bass, I mean. Yeah. Sure. So, and some bass play. I mean, and and but it's physical too. I mean, when you have a horn player, they can play as long as they want. But at some point, with a bass, you know, you can't expect them to play ten choruses. They're going to wear themselves out. You know, then you know, you know, playing bass, you know, walking bass, is a lot easier than actually playing a bass solo. <laughs> yeah. But also because. The bass solo, everything drops down, and which can be great if you have a great bass player, but they have to be damn good. Um, but even then, you don't want to hear a bass solo on every single song. And with a horn player, I don't have to think about that. You know? Yeah. It's interesting yeah. anyway, and it's also more bright, so you have the whole dynamic changes. So you have a horn solo, you have a piano solo, and it just keeps on going. And then there's a drum solo, and you know, and we can pick our dynamics instead of having to drop it down for one solo. Like on the bass, you have to play comp real soft behind them, which is cool, but you're stuck with that kind of dynamic. With a horn yeah. player, you can, if the horn player decides to play soft, you go soft, but if they go up, then you go up with them, you know, you have that option. Which actually, you have more dynamic options with a one player. I mean, it's, that's how I feel about it. So it, it just turns out really well where, you know, I just uh, uh, play a lot with, with horn players most of the time. Uh, sometimes I get Rod Fleeman in there on guitar if he's available, which is a lot of fun too, which is a whole different thing again. But, um, you know, I like the variety, you know. I have like three or four different horn players that I use, and even sometimes Rob, when you can make it, and sometimes I do get a bass player. Um, but it's primarily horns. It frees me up in the left hand, too, playing all the passing chords and stuff, because a bass player is not going to know what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sure, absolutely. So I, 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 I throw in a shitload more, uh, you know, harmonics than, you know, which, what you normally would do because I can. Yeah. You know, passing chords and passing chords are not going to be in the way of the original 
course. It's just added to it, but you can keep on playing. You know, the soloist can keep on playing according to the original chord progressions. I'm just adding in some passing chords in between, which, you know, makes it a little more interesting. And I have that freedom. So that's it's a lot of fun to do it that way. So let me ask you this. What is the sound you're going for? When you approach the piano, get on stage in front of a crowd, you're different ensembles and just playing. What do you, what's your sound you're going for? I'm always going for the richest possible sound. <laughs> I I don't want to play like a single bass note in 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 uh, in the chord four sheets. I always play stride. I always play a lot of tenths. The tenth is basically a third in the octave. The third is a very essential harmony, and it makes it sound so much bigger and richer. But I'm always going for that thirties and forties swing sound, whether it's a small group or a larger group. Right on. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Fats Waller, for instance, he has a great, rich sound on that piano, but that's because he plays a lot of big chords, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... Eric Garner's like that. I love that because you can also be very lyrical with it, but it also uh, it gives you such a strong foundation to support the melody. Uh, so I, I really love that. It's, it's just, it is more orchestral. It really, yeah. truly is more orchestral. And I think that way myself too. You know, if you find yourself thinking orchestral, it will come out of the piano. It's really, yeah. It's really uh, very cool to do it that way. I mean, for, personally, for me, anyway. Sure. So talk to me about your mentors. Who would you consider mentors? Who's given you really good advice? Well, my piano teacher at the conservatory, for one, because he also knew a lot about stride and aerogonor and things like that. And uh, also the uh, the head of the jazz department back then, um, taught me a lot about block harmony. That's the style that uh, George Shearing played a lot. Um, very chordal. Um, uh, Deborah Brown was a great mentor, as, you know, as, as far as, you know, just looking at it from an artistic perspective and de- de- deciding what you want to go for and then sticking to it. You know, uh, Bobby Watson has been a good mentor. You know, I've taught at UMKC for 15 years, and so I've worked with Bobby quite a bit on different projects, too. So, I mean, it it comes from everywhere, really. Bob Kindred in New York, who was a great tenor sax player, he was a very good mentor, and he also, you know, gravitated towards that 40s and 50s big Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins kind of sound. So... Stylistically, we we matched up very well together. <laughs> so, so um, and Hal Media too. Hal Media used to be here at UMKC. Hal Media is a yeah. great tenor player. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. We're very close. What do you love about Kansas City? I think it's a beautiful city, actually, and there's a lot going on cultural culturally, and uh, you know it's uh, here. Um, when you make contact with other musicians, nobody seems to be standoffish or something. Every everybody seems to be really welcoming, and you know they're talking to you. They're not like a, uh, you know, like you see sometimes in New York. In New York people are either super nice or they're very competitive. 
Here it doesn't seem to be the case so much, not nearly as much. So um, I always feel very at home here, you know, being part of the city. Being part of the city is, is a good feeling instead of trying to become part of, you know, you 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 don't have to put in a lot of effort to become part of the scene. You know, it's it's welcoming. It's nice. Right on. Speaking of welcoming and nice in Kansas City, back in the late nineties, Mayor Cleaver deemed a day after you after you had a Carnegie Hall show. Talk to me about that. How did that feel? Well, I was rather surprised when I got that proclamation, and but uh, I felt very honored uh, that uh, you know uh, that he recognized that as as a significant. <laughs> thing, not just for me, but for the city, since I chose to live here. And um, so I thought that was a really nice gesture. I still look look on that very fondly uh, when when that happened. So, yeah, I, I didn't see that one coming at all. <laughs> <laughs> what day is it again? April 6th. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. April 6th, 1998. Beautiful. Um, so up to this point in your life, you've had a lot of things happen. How do you feel about your career? Uh, well, I'm not rich by any means, but it's not about that. Um, I'm making a decent living doing what I do. And uh, it's the recognition uh, that you receive from different sources that is more important than anything else. Um, because when I did Carnegie Hall, for instance, or I've done Jessica Lincoln Center with Bobby Watson also, and that was back in 2005. Um, you know, those are great, high-profile things you can stick under your belt. But it doesn't keep you working, necessarily, you know. Uh, it will help propel your career a little bit, but you still have to work. Um but um, I like to, you know, be able to work and, you know, because I I'm, I want to play, you know. I like to play. So um, I have done you know, lots of, you know, festivals back in the day with the New Red Onion Jazz Babies, which was a local Dixieland band here. Um, and um, I have been going to Pennsylvania twice a year since 2009, where I am uh, an artist in residence with the Endless Mountain Music Festival. It sounds like a mountain music festival, but it's not. It's it's, it's a region in Pennsylvania called the Endless Mountains. But it's I do uh, some jazz stuff there, and uh, there's a lot of musicians. There's a lot of orchestral stuff going on, classical chamber music. Uh, uh, and in, uh, I have to go there next month for they have their um, annual jazz weekend fundraiser uh, festival, little festival weekend going on to um, help rein in funds for the summer festival, which usually puts me out of town for about three weeks. And that has become like a regular thing, which is very nice to do. Um, and from... There, from there, you meet other people too. So I have done some some other things in different universities, like master classes. So, um, you know, things keep happening. So, which is a lot of fun. Right on. And of course, I go to uh, Europe 
at least once a year, you know, where I do, um, you know, uh, a little concert tour in Holland. Um, mm -hmm. I have a friend there that helps me book, uh, you know, a bunch of concerts there. So it's a nice, affordable way for me to also, you know, go see my family. Um, I've been to Germany in the past lots of times, but I still go to Germany every once in a while, and it looks like I have to go again in August. So, um, you know, things are happening. There's there's plenty of variety to keep it fun. Absolutely. So, speaking of Kansas City and the lore that this town has had, if you could go back in time and go down to 18 and Vine and see a musician live, who would you want to see? Oh, gosh. I want to see everybody. <laughs> I like that answer. I want to see everybody. No, I mean, if, if, if I had a time machine, I wouldn't want to go back in time. And Yeah, I would love to go peek in, but I would go for the 30s. Yeah, I'll go for the 30s. When, you know, when you still had Benny Moten and Count Basie was coming up and some of the other, you know, musicians back then, you know, Jamie McShane, but when they had their bands, that is really the kind of thing I'd love to see, you know, if I, if I could go back and see that. Yeah. So why do you love jazz? It's fun to play, but it still keeps your brain working. It's interesting. Yeah. It's uh, intelligent. Um, it's, it's, it's a real viable art form. Um, and, um, you know, I don't have the same feeling with country and western for instance or pop music especially these days i mean i like some of the pop stuff or the older you know stuff like motown or um <laughs> you know but i chose jazz because and especially the, the style that i do it makes me happy <laughs> i dig it. it's 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 fun to play but it's also beautiful i mean and for instance if you if you talk in the arrangements and stuff like that it can be really beautiful um yeah but it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, I could, I could play in the blues bands anytime, but then if I if I were to play blues, I would play Barrow House piano blues, you know. Um, and I like that too. But um, yeah, especially with the stride and the, and the, and the arranging, you know, the orchestral stuff, um, I just really find it very interesting. And it takes a good long time to learn that. Exactly. You know, it's it's not uh, a very simple kind of thing to do. But if you know how to do it, you know it's it's not difficult. But you you actually find yourself being able to do difficult things. But using it as a tool to express something—that's really what you know. What I find very interesting about it, you can really make it interesting. People can still recognize songs, but you can still do something. Um, you know, in in a way where okay, this is how I would do it, and um, you know, people find that very interesting too. You know, even though the audience may not know what the hell we're talking about, <laughs> uh, they can still appreciate it because they hear a certain difference between this, that, and the other, even though they can't tell what it is. I dig it. What what does your future look like? What do you see happening, say, here in the next five, ten years down the line for you? I think, uh, like I always said, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because there's not a whole lot of other people that 
you know, plays drive piano or, you know, plays swing music. That's not that many. Well, this is coming back a little bit with swing dancers, but um, generally speaking, you know, for, for smaller jazz ensembles, there's not a whole lot of people that do that. And um, I just keep doing what I'm doing. And I get recognized for it in different sources, and that's all I want. You know, I I can, you know, envision some kind of a big career push or whatever that would be. I have no idea because I'm doing what I want to do already. I mean, musically speaking, right? Sure. So, sure. um, I mean, if somebody wants to come and say, hey, I'll give you a million-dollar record contract, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's difficult to do. And uh, uh, um, so... Um, and you know, I I have been in touch with people about that. It's it's very difficult to do, and you know, you can hardly sell anything anymore unless it's online for ninety nine cents a song. So uh, it's that's a whole different market that I haven't really learned very well. But that's okay. Um, you know, I musically I do exactly what I want to do, and you know, if I had some money on my own, I would you know start a big band pay the guys <laughs> i like it that's cool yeah so everyone has a version of who you are your family your friends your fans but at the end of the day who is brahm tell me who you think you are gosh what a question <laughs> wow <coughs> i don't know i mean I'm, I'm it's primarily the musician i guess um that's that's been you know, that that's who I am. I mean, I tune a lot of pianos, too. But I perceive that kind of like the same way as um, the way I perceive music. I try to do it as well as I can and as honest as I can. Um, you know, with the music, I I only want to play what, what I believe in and what I love. You know, it's like I'm, I'm not going to spend my life playing music that I don't like. You know, that's no way to spend your life. Um, I also like to work on pianos for people, you know, to make pianos better sounding uh, because it's it's a rewarding kind of thing, you know, when you can make somebody happy with, uh, you know, getting something fixed for them. So, um, but I, I don't know. At the end of the day, it's just, uh, you know, just spending my life, you know, with, with things that I like to do because if I'm unhappy then people around me are going to know and they're not going to be happy either I don't want that <laughs> right on I like that I think that's a great way to wrap everything up Brom thank you for taking some time out to speak with me Jam Magazine and Neon Jazz I appreciate it No problem. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Kansas City, the Netherlands, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Brom for his dedication to Kansas City, all the music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.